Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for that uh, introduction. Sorry, I'm messing with the uh, papers up here. Hopefully, they're not important. <laughs> um, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Second Peter. We're going to be in chapter 1 this morning. And as a, uh, just a kind of getting us oriented, we're going to be reading the first 15 verses of Second Peter, uh, but our text is going to be 3 through 11. And this, uh, this is a, uh, the, the introduction to Peter's, uh, Peter's letter, but in this it's a very clear mini-sermon. And so we're actually going to be using that, his sermon outline, as our outline for this sermon today, so just to kind of orient you. Um, and if you are there at Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1, if you would please stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word. Verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing by ours, or with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has, created, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his, his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ." Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you already know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you will be able to, at any time, recall these things. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be able to enter into your presence and to worship you for who you are and what you have done. Lord, as we open up first, uh, Second Peter today and we, we expound on what Peter is saying and, and apply it to our lives, Lord, would you guide us? Would you lead us? Would you be transforming our hearts? Would our uh, uh, 
ears be open to hear and our eyes open to see. And Lord, would we walk out of these doors not, not with a list that we wrote of better things to, to, to have a better life, but Lord, would we actually walk out of these doors transformed by your word through your spirit, by your grace and mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray these things in your name. Amen. So have you ever thought about what people will remember of you when you pass away. I wanted to open up with the, the, the whole section there because Peter ties in this passage that we're going to be expounding on, and he says that this is the most important thing that I want you to remember, that it is literally the last thing that I am going to tell you before I pass away. What, what legacy do you want to leave when you are gone? Furthermore, if you knew that your death was imminent, what would you be doing right now with the last days or weeks that you had in this body? Peter writes us a letter with his last moments. And the introduction to this mini-sermon that he, he puts uh, or the, of his passage is this mini-sermon, and Peter wants this message to be the legacy that people remember him by. He wants to be remembered for this message after he dies, and what that message is, is that God, through the foundation of the gospel, has given believers everything that they need to be saved and to grow in gospel maturity. Peter knows that false teachers are preaching something contrary to sound doctrine, and that is what the majority of his, his letter is about. And he is so convinced, so sure that, the, that his Lord and Savior will return one day, that this is, again, the last thing that he is wanting to spend his life doing, is writing to his fellow believers. So some people, when, they, when we think about what Peter is, is bringing to us today, some people will say, they'll think the gospel is, uh, it's the entryway into heaven. I say this prayer, I say that I believe Jesus, I confess it out loud, and then I am saved. I've checked that box. Now I just go on living the life that I used to live, or I go on living the life that I want to live, uh, or I try to add some, you know, Christian morals to my life here and there, and then, you know, we're good. But that's not what Peter is actually saying here today. And um, it, it, it's helpful. Uh, these, these guys uh, wrote a book, uh, Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp. They wrote a book called How People Change. And in this book, they say that people need to see that the gospel belongs in their workplace their kitchen, their school, their bedroom, their backyard, and in their van. They need to see the way the gospel makes a connection between what they are doing and what God is doing. They need to understand that their life stories are being lived out within God's larger story so that they can learn to live each day with a gospel mentality. In other words, the gospel is not just the doorway into heaven, it is the means to live as if you are in heaven now. The gospel is the mechanism that transforms Christ followers 
into the image and likeness of Christ. Another way of saying that, a, a more theological way of saying that, is sanctification. The process of becoming more like Christ. So in our text today, again, you're, you're going to see this is a sermon, and we're going to use that as our, uh, as our structure. So if you're taking notes today, um, this is the structure, this is the direction in which we are going. Verse 3 through 4 is the foundation for gospel maturity. And then Peter's second point is growth in gospel maturity, which is verse 5 through 7. And then his final point is the confirmation of gospel maturity, verses 8 through 11. So through this text, I hope that you will actually see, though, the main point is the gospel is the foundation of salvation and sanctification. And sanctification is the confirmation of salvation. So point Number one, the foundation for gospel maturity. Verse three. So in, in this passage, this is a, a, a it it's, comes before the major exhortation that Peter delivers. He could have started off by saying, go do this and go do that. You guys are already Christians. You know this truth. And so therefore, all you need to do now is add to your faith virtue, add to virtue spiritual uh, or, or uh, sanctification and various Christian virtues. But what he does, he doesn't do that. Rather, he starts off with something different. He says, his divine power. And what, what is his divine power? What Peter means by this is Christ's work on the cross. One commentator says it refers to his power to reclaim lost sinners and are unleashed through his death and resurrection. So his divine power is the, the, his power to reclaim lost sinners through his death and resurrection. So Christ's death on the cross has granted, and granted is the, it's a perfect passive participle, which means that it was something that has been completed. It was something that was done and has continuing effects into the future. So his power, the gospel, has granted, granted what? All things that pertain to life and godliness. What is life and godliness? Life is referring to eternal life. Now, this isn't something new. This is something that all, if you have been around Christians for any moment of time, you have heard that, if you believe in Jesus, you will have eternal life. And this is often the main pitch of Christianity. But the problem with this is that Christianity isn't a sales pitch. At Faith Life at Lagos, I, I, I'm a salesperson. I do sales pitches all the time. Christianity isn't a sales pitch. I saw a, a billboard in, uh, in Snohomish uh, last week, and it said, try Jesus. If, if you don't like him, the devil will take you. And while that, in essence, is true, it's, it's a misguided sales pitch. Because the, the problem with this is that this is all about you. This is all about what you want. You're, you're, you fear hell, and so you want something better than that. 
Or maybe you're not fearing hell, but you want heaven. You want this great, wonderful thing that, that is promised to you if you say the words, I believe in Jesus. But it's, it's self-motivated. It's a selfish value proposition that's getting to your heart, your emotions. Um, but that's not what Christianity is. And that's not what Peter is talking about here. Now, godliness. So that's life, eternal life. Now, godliness is the second thing that he says results uh, is, is a result that is granted by Christ's, by the gospel. And this can follow the same trajectory. This Greek word means to live in a way that is pleasing to God. So this too could be misguided. Some believe that if they, be, if they, if they live a life that pleases God, then they will be granted eternal life. This is called uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. It's anti-biblical, it is not Christianity, but it, people who believe in that think that they do. If they're a good person, then they'll be saved. Cultural Christianity is another way, term for that. If they have the right morals, if they're a good person, they'll go to heaven when they die. But again, this is not what Peter is saying, and it's not what the Bible says. Rather, he is saying that through Christ's divine power, demonstrated on the cross, you actually have been granted a life that is worthy of, of God. You have been granted a life that is pleasing to him. And that is wonderful news. So what leads to life and godliness? In verse 4, Peter says, sorry, verse 3, half, second half of verse 3, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, to the knowledge of him who? The holy, worthy, excellent Savior Jesus Christ, not you. So what is Christianity all about? It's all about him. The value proposition is Jesus. The value proposition isn't life free of suffering, life in e eternal life. That's a, oh, don't get me wrong, that's a wonderful blessing of the Christian life. But that's not the point of the Christian life. The point of it all is Jesus Christ. Secondly, he, he, he called us to something. And this isn't a call like you, you get a phone call and uh, you, know, you can choose to decline it, screen it, you know, send it to voicemail, or answer it if you wanted to. Now, this is the, 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 the underlying word here actually has more of a, a meaning of summoned. Think of being summoned by a king or a president or your boss or your parents. You don't really have an option for that. You just, you go, you're summoned, you're called. And that is what this is kind of more referring to, is that Christ has called us. He has summoned us to his own glory and excellence. This is a covenantal relationship that he is establishing with us. And that results in the precious and very great promises of eternal life and godliness. And that then leads us to become partakers of the divine nature. And divine nature, that, that, that's a way of saying Christ's moral perfection. This isn't saying that we're going to be omnipotent and have the ability to do everything that Jesus was able to do, but rather this is the ability to become like him in our character, in who we are and our moral perfection. We will become like him. In other, again, in other words, sanctification. 
So by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are given everything that we need to know him and live according to his will. In the last part of verse 4, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. What is the cause of corruption in life? Peter's perspective on this, on the cause of corruption is sinful desires. In other words, corruption is internal. Corruption is rooted in the desires of our hearts, what we want. Have you noticed how the world hates this idea? They don't like the idea that the problem is our heart. The problem is us. Therapists blame parents for all your life's problems. A chemical imbalance is the problem, and so therefore a pill is the solution. Racism is systemic, not individual. Critical theory, the the current cultural perspective, says that the cause of corruption is not internal, it's external. Critical theory divides the world into two pieces or two groups. There are oppressors and then there are oppressed. The oppressors are the hegemonic power on the top of the oppression pyramid, and everything below that are the oppressed people who need to be liberated from the oppression that is at the top. Carl Truman, in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, explains how our current cultural moment has been shaped by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He says, Rousseau has come to understand that people are not monsters by nature, but by virtue of their social conditioning. And it is the imagination that mystifies and thereby hides the real cause of corruption. That's not what Peter is saying. Peter says, Sinful desires are the cause of corruption. Later, Truman summarizes Rousseau's argument, and he says, Rousseau believes it is society and the relations and conditions that society embodies that decisively shape and decisively corrupt individuals. This is what our society believes. But is society really the problem? If so... The solution is to liberate oneself from the corruption of society by taking down the systems that inhibit self-expression. This is in opposition to the biblical worldview. Understanding the root cause of what the problem actually is has radical implications on what the solution is. If we get the problem wrong, we get the solution wrong. If the problem is the system, salvation comes through the, through, through the right political party and transformation of the system. If the problem is chemical, then the solution, the salvation, is a pill. But if the problem is sinful desires, salvation comes through the transformation of our desires. But how do we do that? How do we transform our desires? This reminds me of Deuteronomy 10, 6, where God commands the Israelites to circumcise the foreskin of their heart. And what that means is to be transformed, to be made into his image, to to conform to his law, to his rule. But then in Deuteronomy 29, 4, he says, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, eyes to see, 
Think about that and when we get to talking about blindness in the future. He has not given you eyes to see nor ears to hear. So you can't transform. He commands you, circumcise the foreskin of your heart, but you are incapable of actually doing that. They're longing for this transformation. They're longing for this change, but they're incapable of actually accomplishing it on their, thems- by themselves. So what's the solution? Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. God promises to one day be the one to accomplish this himself. He says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. And that is what Peter is promising. The Savior has come. Who can transform us? We cannot. Society cannot. A pill cannot. Only the risen Lord Jesus can save us. Think about that for a moment. Not only is eternal life obtained through the gospel, so is everything that you need to live a godly life. What this promises is that you're not left on your own to grow in holiness. You have you, you are armed with the gospel of Jesus Christ and you are filled with the Holy Spirit who then empowers you to do this. It is Jesus Christ that is the power to be saved and the power to be sanctified. It is both the entrance, the gospel is both the entrance into heaven and the means to live as if you are in heaven now. Do you feel like this is true for you? Do you feel like in every circumstance you have the power to live as Christ would? Based on 2 Peter, you have everything that you need in Christ, whether you feel like it or not. And I know I don't always feel like it. There are so many times where I'm struggling with a sin that just seems like it will not die. But by Christ's grace and mercy, I have the power to live a life that is worthy of the calling in which I have been called. And so do you. This is the foundation for gospel maturity, the gospel. (laughs) This is the foundation that Peter uses to exhort his readers to grow in gospel maturity. So what, what does it look like to grow in gospel maturity? We get to verse five through seven, the second point, which is growth in gospel maturity. For this very reason, Peter says, which, what reason? Everything we just unpacked, the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. For that reason, make every effort. And the word effort there doesn't mean to just sit passively. The effort, it actually means make an effort, be diligent. Be eager. Be eager to what? To supplement your faith. Supplement means add to. If I need to unpack that, I can, but it should be pretty self-explanatory. Supplement your faith. Add to your faith. Add to your faith what? Virtue. But what, oftentimes there's a, 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 you know, a 
quabbling about this, this list of virtues, sometimes people think, oh, you got to start with one, then go to the next, and the next, and the next. And I don't think that's what Peter's trying to do here. I think, I think the most important part about this list of virtues is that faith is the first one, and love is the last one. So faith is the foundation of our relationship with, with the Lord Jesus. The gospel itself is the reason why we are saved. And so when we put our faith in Christ, we're believing the gospel. We're repenting of our sins. And then we add to that virtue and all these other characteristics. So faith is the, is the first because it's the foundation so virtue is showing uh, uncommon characteristic worthy of praise. And this, this is the same word in verse 3 that is translated in the ESV as, as excellence, referring to Jesus and his, his character. Um, and so what that means is that Peter calls believers to display the same exceptional moral values that Jesus displayed on earth. So add to virtue, knowledge, which is a comprehension or intellectual grasp of something. Often knowledge is associated with saving faith, like, like up in verse 2 and in verse, uh, verse 3. It, it's referring to saving faith. But here, again, because faith is already established, one commentator says it most likely refers to the ability to discern God's will and orient one's life in accordance with that will. Grow in knowledge. And add to knowledge, self-control, which is the ability to restrain one's emotions, impulses, and desires. When an unwanted feeling comes up, when your, your heart has a desire that arises to the surface, what do you do with that desire? What do you do with that emotion? Paul Tripp says, we do what we do because we want what we want. When we act Without self-control, what are you wanting? I, I can almost guarantee that if you're, if you're acting out of without self-control, you're not wanting Christ in that moment. You're wanting something else. Add to knowledge self-control. Grow in self-control. And add to self-control, steadfastness. So what happens if you have self-control the first time? And maybe the second time? But what happens when you don't have it the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time? Peter says, add to your self-control, steadfastness. Which is the ability to hold out in the face of difficulty. Steadfastness is the ability to have self-control in the most difficult circumstances over a prolonged period of time. Grow in steadfastness. And add to that godliness. And we already unpacked godliness, but just, so just remember that godliness means to live in a way that pleases God. And then grow in brotherly affection. We all know this Greek word, Philadelphia. Brotherly love, brotherly affection. Do you show charity to everyone that you know as if they were a brother or sister in Christ? Or, or maybe a sibling that, in which you love? Do you give everyone the benefit of the doubt? Or is there somebody who you just can't stand and you always talk about them behind their back? Grow in brotherly affection. And last 
but certainly not least, is grow in love. Peter concludes this list of virtues with love because it is the greatest gospel characteristic. It's the greatest of them all. And as Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 37, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is the love that Christ displayed on the cross. Paul Tripp calls this cruciform love. And and he defines it this way, and this is in his marriage book, if you're interested. Um, He says, love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. He builds this definition on the basis of Christ's love for the church. That's why he calls it cruciform love, the cross love. And every aspect of this is important. Jesus willingly laid down his life. Nobody forced him, not even the Father. He gave up his own life willingly. Two, it was a sacrifice, a self-sacrifice. Like, again, he didn't just give out of the abundance of his life. He gave his entire life. He sacrificed it all. Three, Christ went to the cross for the good of others. He didn't do it for his own behalf. I'm sure if it was for him, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. He would have called down the angels to take him off of it. But he did it for the good of others. For Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Christ didn't wait for us to reciprocate his love or expecting this reciprocation in in return. Rather, he did it regardless of reciprocation. And five, we are not deserving of his love. There is Nobody here who deserves the love that Christ displayed on the cross. We could never earn that love. We could never repay him for the love in which he has poured out on the cross. But he gave it anyway. So Peter exhorts his readers to grow in gospel maturity. And these characteristics are a part of the maturity that comes with living a life in accordance with the gospel. But if you're like me, it only takes a short reflection to realize just how far you fall short of this gospel maturity. Peter has laid out the foundation for gospel maturity, and next, Peter concludes his little micro-sermon by explaining that the growth in gospel maturity is actually confirmation of gospel maturity. Verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he means by this is that if you are growing in gospel maturity, it shows that your saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is fruitful. It is a confirmation of your calling and election. And verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former 
sins. In other words, if you lack gospel maturity, if you are not seeing yourself grow in those virtues, you've forgotten the gospel. You're not looking at the gospel. You're blind to it. You're neither looking forward or you're, you're neither looking backward. You're looking down at yourself. You're neither looking forward to the great promises that Christ has promised through his death and resurrection, namely eternal life and, the, and living in the presence of him, and you're neither looking backwards at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in which he secured your salvation. You're looking at yourself. You've forgotten that your sins were imputed to Christ and that it was your punishment that Jesus received on the cross. You've forgotten that Christ's perfection was imputed to you as righteousness. It's only by, the, by Christ's blood that we are cleansed from our former sins. And you've forgotten that. So some of you here need to hear that. When you look back on when you became a Christian, you don't see much fruit. You don't see much change. Sure, maybe you don't drink as much or, or curse as often, but there's not much growth in anything else. You still find it difficult to pray. You glaze over when you open your Bible just as quickly as you opened it. You don't care about it. When you see your neighbors, you hope they don't see you. You and your spouse bicker all the time. There isn't much love for anyone but yourself. You need to hear this. If you are not growing, Peter's saying you're blind and nearsighted. You've forgotten that you have been cleansed by your former, of your former sins. Maybe you're content in your faith, but you're blind and you do not see. You need to grow in gospel maturity, not to earn your salvation. Faith is enough, but true faith grows because the spirit of the living God is living within you. The gospel not only secures your eternal destiny, it drives your sanctification. And your sanctification is the visible fruit that you are, in fact, secure. But if you do not see Fruit of gospel maturity, you are blind and should have no confidence that you will be provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior. But simultaneously, I think this is an encouragement to you. Because he doesn't say, for whoever lacks these qualities and is so nearsighted that he is blind and you have forgotten that you need to go do X, Y, Z, what he says is that you have forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins. This isn't a call to, to action. It's a call to remember. It's not your moral perfection. It's Christ's moral perfection. It's not a call for you to try harder and do better. It's because Jesus Christ has already done better and tried harder on your behalf. It requires you to look backward and to look forward. And naturally out of that will produce these virtues that we see here that Peter exhorts us to live in. Remember that you were cleansed from your former sins. 
Verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided to you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there are many of you here, though, that you don't need to hear an exhortation to remember the gospel because you do a good job of it. You love the gospel. You think about the gospel daily. You're learning to apply the gospel in your lives. Continue to run the race well. Continue to look upon your Lord Jesus Christ to savor him. When you look back on when you become a Christian, we, we probably wouldn't even recognize you. If you look back 5, 10, 30 years ago, and we look at you today, you're, just, you're completely different. You used to not care about the Bible. But now you're not just reading it, you're studying it. You're meditating on it. You can't get enough. You used to enjoy partaking in sin, but now you enjoy partaking in the divine nature, in the moral perfection of Jesus Christ. You're not pursuing sin, you're pursuing godliness. You used to not care about theology, but now you can't quench your thirst enough to know about God. You used to not care about strangers, but now you're thinking about ways to love your next door neighbors all the time. And every time you see them, you're trying to figure out, how can I share this wonderful news with them? You display brotherly affection and love to those in the church who have nothing in common with you other than the shared faith in Jesus Christ. Keep being diligent at remembering the gospel. This is an encouragement to you because this will confirm your calling and election and your entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the next time that you're doing the dishes, the next time that you're in a fight with your spouse or you're settling into your sofa for the night and watching TV, or the next time you're in your van with your children or you're at a daycare or you're at the park or you're at work, the next time that, that, that you see an insignificant moment, do not forget how that insignificant moment fits into God's greater overarching story. Be diligent to consider how your life story fits within God's larger story. Consider how that insignificant moment could and should be shaped by the gospel. Consider how you can live every moment of your life with gospel maturity. If you do this, no moment is insignificant. All moments become gospel moments for those who have gospel maturity. So remember, the gospel is the foundation of salvation and sanctification. And sanctification is the confirmation of your salvation. Let's pray. King Jesus, we are desperate for your life, death, and resurrection to be made real in our lives. 
Lord, we fail epically all the time trying to find our own way to live life according to our will and our desires. Lord, we fail so often to look to the hope that which we have in you. We fail to look backward at what you have done on the cross. We fail to look forward of that future promise of eternal life, Lord, that you have granted to us through your gracious and merciful sacrifice on the cross. Would you transform us today with your word? Would you magnify your name in our lives, Lord? May we find more joy, more pleasure in knowing who you are. For those who are, who are content and are not growing in their faith, Lord, would you exhort them today, Lord, to, to consider again the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and how that applies and it, it matters to every single day and how that drives us to become more holy, to become more like Christ. Lord, and would you remind us that those things aren't, aren't what save us, but it is because of what you have done, Lord, that we are saved. I pray this in your holy and precious name, Jesus. Amen.